0: Welcome to the Amputee Show podcast. I'm your host, Salt Domingo, and joining me today is Canada's first above-knee amputee, RoboCop, as he is often referred to, Ontario's Provincial Constable Peter Tucker. He is definitely no ordinary RoboCop. He is also one of the first Canadians to have Austria integration in Canada and is an active cop on duty. And we are in for a Double surprise here today, folks. We also have his lovely wife, Michelle, joining us because you got to hear what the wonderful things this couple does in the community. But before we get to all of that, welcome to the show, Constable Peter Tucker. And Michelle, welcome to the show. Thank you. Now, may I call you Pete or Peter, or do you prefer Constable?
1: I prefer people I like to call me Pete, so you can call me Pete.
0: Awesome. Sounds great. So let's get into it. we got a lot to, to cover today. So take us back to to what happened on that June day in 2014, where
1: where were you and what were you doing? I was a member of the Ontario Provincial Police Golden Helmets, which is like the RCMP musical ride on horses, except Mm -hmm. we did shows for charity and entertainment on motorcycles. Specifically that day, I was uh, helping to teach a course on VIP escorts for the pan am games and i was southbound out of Aurelia, approaching barry at the uh, 411 split on the highway and while i remember nothing of what i'm telling you other people tell me this i was in a coma for two weeks at some point i collided with a goose in flight uh it struck me in the face at highway speed it knocked me unconscious I continued on on the motorcycle due to centrifugal force, but I was in no control. Uh, and I collided with a steel guardrail that severed my leg at the scene, my left leg. So you
0: read it right away after hitting the guardrail. It, it's completely off or? Yes. I guess my next question is, did they try to attach it uh, well, in hospital when you got there?
1: My sergeant, who's my boss and my very good friend, uh lise grenier she actually carried my leg onto the uh helicopter that i ended up being on but the leg was so badly damaged they couldn't do anything but her hopes were that they could reattach it and just to show you what a good friend she is and what a professional officer she is she looked through the uh tragedy of the scene and the and the graphic of the scene and Decided, I was her friend. She was going to carry my leg and try and help me. So I, I owe her a lot for trying. Wow, that's 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 great. I mean, it's not so great, but that's good that you can count on a friend like that. Now, and the Michelle, other thing though is, if we go to a bar and the tab comes and she's there for the rest of my life, I have to buy the beer now. So I, I can. Im- she got I, something good out of it. Good, good. <laughs> that's that's very good. Now, Michelle, I, I can't
0: imagine. You know what went through your mind. Where were you at the time when, when this all happened? And I guess explain to people, how did you receive it? What was your reaction?
2: So um, at the time of the accident, um, as Pete said, he was up in Barrie. He'd actually been away for um, a couple of days with the Golden Helmets, which was, was quite common at the time. And um, I was at work that morning. And as you know, I was basically, I was the recreational manager of a gymnastics club. So I was coaching some children in the gym and my phone um, kept ringing. And it was off to the side of the gym because, of course, I was teaching and wasn't answering. Um, But it kept ringing. And I finally thought, you know, I should probably get this. And so I answered the phone. And it was my daughter, who at the time was 16. And she was at home uh, for exams. And she said to me, Mom, there are two police officers at the door. And now they're on the way to your work. And as soon as she said that, I knew um, that there was something horrible had happened. Because two police officers don't come to your door. to tell you good news generally. So I knew that, uh, you know, I basically knew that Pete was probably hurt or dead. And I went and I waited um, in my office. And then a few minutes later, sure enough, um, his sergeant or staff sergeant, I think, came in and informed me um, that Pete had been in a very, very serious accident. And they basically at that point loaded me up into a police car and drove me to Sunnybrook Hospital where he was being airlifted at the time.
0: This happened in Barry. so it flown right directly into Toronto to Sunnybrook Hospital.
1: That's actually part of the story, if you want me to launch into how I got, because it's very fast what happened.
0: Oh, absolutely.
1: So Go ahead. Essentially what happened, I always say that that day of my life was the worst day of my life and the best day of my life. It was mm-hmm. the worst day of my life because I lost my leg and I was very badly hurt. And it's the best day of my life because I lived. Mm-hmm. So... As tragic as my accident was, I choose to look at all the good that happened that day. And in particular, the accident happened, and I was surrounded by a number of OPP members that were my friends, but they're also my colleagues. They knew how to do first aid, and they didn't panic when they found me. I'm sure they were all hurt by what they saw because I'm their friend, but their professionalism kicked in, they got a tourniquet on me, and they stopped the bleeding. And once you lose your leg, that is a very serious incident. But once you get the bleeding stopped medically, it's kind of okay once you get the bleeding stopped, So the first great thing that happened was uh, I landed in a ditch that was full of water. And grass. And grass. So the doctor said my impact was soft. But I probably hit the grass at 100 kilometers an hour, so it wasn't that soft. (laughs) I didn't cross the highway and land in oncoming traffic and get run over, I landed on the only strip of grass that was there. My friends got a tourniquet on me. I crashed right in front of Royal Victoria Hospital in Barrie. It was in walking distance, except I couldn't walk. (laughs) So they had to take me by ambulance. When I got to Royal Victoria Hospital, there was a surgeon, a trauma surgeon from Sunnybrook visiting his friend at Sunnybrook. And he essentially just stepped in and said, my injuries were too great for Royal Victoria Hospital. I have to go to Sunnybrook Trauma Center. So I was assessed probably within minutes of the accidents by somebody who knew what to do. It's just fluke, it's luck. Then the next thing is to get me from Barry to Sunnybrook. How are they gonna do it? Well, they decide an Air Orange helicopter is the way to go. More luck my that day, an Air Orange helicopter was sitting in a parking lot with its engines warm because it got canceled. So I essentially went into Royal Victoria Hospital, was assessed by a trauma surgeon from Sunnybrook who phoned ahead to say what was coming. They loaded me straight up on a helicopter and I was gone. And I'm very careful when I tell that story because I was in and out of Royal Victoria Hospital so fast, they didn't have time to bill me. And I'm sure there's nurses going, where did the guy with one leg go? Like, how did we lose this guy? But I was on a helicopter heading to Toronto and Michelle was in St. Catharines with our kids trying to get to Toronto.
2: Right. And basically, once they informed me um, of the accident, they drove me um, to, they were driving me to Sunnybrook Hospital. And I knew it was very, very serious because at some point, they basically shut down the highway and escorted um, us there in order to get us there quickly and you know they don't do that essentially they were just trying to get me there in time to say goodbye is i think what they were doing
1: and actually if i can just add uh toronto police they have a group of motorcycle riders called the winged wheels which is essentially like the golden helmets but their version but what was fantastic that i heard about is that toronto dispatched these officers who were also my friends i rode with them who drove out of the district of Toronto and started shutting down the highway so that Michelle could get there in the, in the police car. And it was just to help a friend, uh, not, not being dramatic. Everybody thought I was dying and I was done, but I have all these officers that the city of Toronto kicks outside to escort my wife, to get her to my side before I'm gone. And I think they deserve a tip of the hat for that. They were, they were not only were they professional, those Toronto police officers and the Winged Wheels—they were, they were friends. They were trying to do something good, right? No, I mean everybody's pulling
0: for both of you guys that day. I think you know, and that's, you know, I, I can't even imagine what was going through Michelle's mind. I didn't realize you were coming from. You said Niagara area, yeah. and then you're all the way in Barrie, Pete, and so you're almost
1: coming from two different directions trying to meet at Sunnybrook. So then Which when was you got this to- common. With the Golden Helmets, I was often all over the province, and Michelle didn't know where I was. And as long as I called at night, everything was right. good. So when when I crashed that day, she had no clue where I really was. She had a general idea. But uh, we were coming from two directions. And with no traffic, Sunnybrook from my house would take an hour and 15 minutes with no traffic. Mm-hmm. So depending on the time of day she's in some trouble. So that's why the police escort was necessary. Yeah. And I guess as a,
0: as a police wife, you'd never want to see cops approaching your door and saying, we need to talk to you or we need to drive you somewhere. No.
2: And in fact, we sometimes tell the story that, you know, prior to the accident, Pete and I had had many um, discussions about the dangers of his job, of course. And he had once said to me, you know, um, if anything ever happens to me, well, if one officer comes to the door, I'm hurt. If two officers come to the door, I'm dead. And had said that, I think, as a joke, I don't really know why he thought that was funny, but he said it sort of as a joke one day. So sure enough, when I was told that there were two officers coming to the door, um, I, it was not a good feeling. Yeah.
1: In my defense, that's how cops deal with stress, is we make jokes and we make humor. And <laughs> hearing her tell you that story... I can see how your listeners might think, oh, what is this guy doing telling his wife that? But in my mind, at the time I said it, it was funny and it wasn't going to happen. Nothing ever happens.
2: Well, and certainly, I mean, and the reality of it is, you know, the fact that this happened because of it a goose we recognize what a joke that sounds like you know Um, and in fact the day that it happened i remember walking into the hospital and the commissioner and other very senior officers in their white shirts they're all standing in a line shaking my hand introducing themselves to me and at this point i still have no idea what's happened i just know that pete because i didn't ask any questions on the drive there um i was just i think praying that he was going to be okay, and Mm -hmm. I arrived, and I'm thinking to myself, I have no idea what happened, and the doctor walks in, and at some point, somebody explains to me that he was hit by a goose, and, you know, was now in a coma, and had lost his leg, and I just thought to myself, why are we talking about a goose? Like, this is the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. It's the most
0: Canadian thing, too.
2: It's the most Canadian thing, and in (laughs) fact, somebody um police officers often joke i remember in that moment one of the officers actually said um it must have been an american goose because a canadian goose wouldn't do this and you know just trying to lighten the situation in a bad, right. very bad moment but yeah yeah
0: no i mean pete's attitude also with with that joke and having said that joke i think in his mind he's prepared and that's why he's resilient in 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 all of this is that he has that attitude about being light about things and moving forward and being happy and and you know how do i get over this stuff and so i think that's already an indication of where he he is at the time when he made that joke of Mm -hmm. you know bad things come in life but i can move forward through all that with humor right
2: and admittedly we you know, we recognized very early on and I said to him, his best friend, while he was still in a coma, I said, you know, if and when he wakes up from this, he's going to have a really hard time with the fact that this happened because of a goose. Like if you're a police officer, you know, if you're shot, if you're stabbed, that's pretty cool if you can survive that. Getting hit by a goose is a, not only is it a blow, it's a blow to the ego. So it really did take actually quite some time For him to be able to get past that and you know we tell the story we could leave out the part of the goose and just say he was in a motorcycle accident we could leave it out but we purposely include it because the fact is in life you have to deal with whatever you know comes your way and then you have to move forward and figure out how you're going to deal with it and keep going
1: we were in a bit of a quandary because if you can have such a thing as a cool injury the goose striking me in the face wasn't it. And to put it in perspective for some of the listeners who may not totally get how severe it was, it's essentially like walking down the aisle at the supermarket and somebody throws a frozen turkey at you at 100 kilometers an hour. That's the impact. That's the speed. That's the severity. And like Michelle said, it wasn't a cool injury. Nobody wants to get shot. I don't want to get shot. But it's Kind of a cool story if you're sitting around with a bunch of cops going, I got shot, I survived, I won. It's not as cool saying, the goose hit me, it almost killed me. I survived and I won. But it's really not that exciting. And as Michelle points out, we could leave the goose out, which I found a little bit embarrassing. But... I was not the best motorcycle rider in the province, but I rode with the best, and I had skills. I did not want people to think I crashed my bike because I didn't know how to ride. So to get around that, that it wasn't really my fault, it was nature, I decided, okay, I'm going to tell the part of the story I don't like because it's true, and it is part of the story. So we go with the goose. I I, I think I'd rather... Get hit and hurt by the goose than have people think, oh, he was riding too fast. He had no control. He didn't know what he was doing. Right.
0: So let's go back to the coma story. So Mm -hmm. with the impact of, was that, did you have any concussions? So what was it, the impact itself that caused the coma or were you induced into a coma or did you arrive with a coma, like going into a coma right away? Well,
1: Michelle will answer those details because she knows it. But just to give you an idea, I remember having dinner the night before the accident with some Mm -hmm. buddies. I -hmm. don't remember going to bed. I don't remember waking up the next day or getting on the bike. I don't Mm -hmm. remember riding or the accident. The next thing I remember is six weeks later. So anybody who saw it on the news and my family knew my leg was gone six weeks before I did. Uh, So I don't know if my body or my mind blocks those memories, but I have no memory 14 hours before the accident or six weeks after.
2: But yes, to answer your question, um, he had a very serious head injury. Um, He had ended up with two bleeds on his brain um, due to the impact. Apparently, he was found 26 meters um, from the guardrail which I don't know if he flew and then fell and rolled. I'm not really sure. I just know that they said they found him much further away than they expected to. They actually couldn't find him at the beginning um, when they were searching through the grass for him. And he had apparently two bleeds on his brain. So they induced a coma, um, I think even prior to reaching Sunnybrook Hospital. So by the time I got there, he was already in the induced coma on a ventilator, yeah, still very much dirty with mud and grass and everything. Um, but yes, he had a very serious head injury. And I think with that, he was in a coma for about um, about two weeks. And then even following waking up from that, um, between the head injury and his medications and everything, his he just wasn't functioning normally for quite some time.
1: I think what people don't understand is... When you watch TV and somebody wakes up from a coma them. Mm-hmm. they're there. Everything's black and white. They remember everything. However, my experience is you wake up from a coma in a fog. Uh, I never forgot who my wife and my kids were, but, uh, I might have a good friend walk in the room and at the time I might look at him and go, okay, say it's a cop. I know him. He's a cop. So I like him, but I can't tell you who he is. And then a couple of days later, it comes back to me. Oh, that's Scott. I have coffee with him. Uh, but I'm still not quite sure why I know. Him. And a few days after that, it gets clearer. So you wake up in stages. Right. And how were you dealing with that, Michelle,
0: that he being in a coma and then in a hospital and then you have a home and kids that you have to run as well. And,
2: Right. So actually, um, what happened with that is I ended up staying in a hotel in Toronto um, for a month. I think for the month that he was in um, Sunnybrook Hospital, I ended up being in a hotel. Um, thankfully, we have wonderful friends and wonderful support from the OPP. Um, and basically, Pete's aunt, his aunt, Anne, ended up moving into our house to take care of our four children. Um, at the time, they were between the ages of nine and 16. Um, and like I said, I lived in this hotel so that I could be with him, you know, essentially 24-7. Um, and yeah, that was really, really tough. The only time that I actually came home at all was in order to tell our children the next day after the accident. I, I wanted to tell them about the amputation. I didn't want them hearing that part um, from anybody else. So the police ended up driving me home so I could talk to the kids. And actually, when I was doing that, I was in the room with them. I had just finished telling them about the details of what was going on. They obviously knew he'd had an accident, but they didn't know any details. And actually, while I was speaking to them, there was a knock at the door. And the officer who drove me um, said, you need to call the doctor right away. And we need to go. And apparently, Pete was being rushed into surgery on the second day because um, essentially his organs were shutting down all of the um, poisons from the toxin um, was yep. going into his bloodstream and he had compartmental syndrome. And, um, and anyways, they ended up having to rush me back to Sunnybrook hospital because they were rushing him into surgery. And thankfully he survived that as well. But um, yeah, it was a really, it, that was the second surgery of what ended up being six um, over the next um, 10 days where they had to keep taking his leg up higher and higher and, um, in order to
0: get rid of any you know, dead muscle. So Pete, you obviously went into a septic shock or some kind of sepsis infection. When you hit the guardrail, was it above the knee right away or was it below the knee first or through the knee? Like what was, do you, do you recall or did they tell you?
1: I'm going to use the excuse I was in a coma. I don't remember. I have no idea. Right. I am told it started below the knee, and it was so badly damaged, they couldn't put it back on anyway. But then things just got worse from there. And I believe the infection that I had was because the goose was a dirty, wild animal. And I...
2: No, not that part. Not from, not, sorry. Oh, no, I'm just Go ahead,
1: saying, in gen- <laughs> I'm just saying in general, it was a wild right. animal.
2: He um, always mixes up this part. I'm not really sure why. I, no, okay, so the leg was one thing. We had the issue of the leg. So, yes, it was, it was below the knee, um, right. and this it was very – it was a horrible – obviously, it was very rough the way that guardrail took it off, and a lot of the muscle in the leg was um, dying. We don't know for sure if it was because of the accident, the way, you know – things were crushed or if it was from the tourniquet. But in any case, a lot of the muscle in the leg was dying. And Mm. so they had to keep going up and ended up after the third surgery, um, you know, slightly above the knee. So that's where it ended up. Thankfully, they were worried they might have to go all the way to the hip, which would have been, of course, much worse because you wouldn't be able to have a prosthesis. And so thankfully, they were able to stop above the knee. With regards to the infection that Pete's referring to, um, at some point, I think it was around five days into his coma, uh, the doctor came to me and he said, we pulled a feather out of Pete's ventilation tube. And I looked at him and, and I think I laughed because I thought this is the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. So I laughed and then realized that he actually had a feather in his lungs because I guess when the bird hit him, he must have taken a breath and in doing so inhaled a little tiny piece of feather Um, From the bird. I guess this has gotten into his lungs, and of course, having anything in your lungs that shouldn't be there can cause infection. That infection ended up causing him to get pneumonia, and then he almost died from the pneumonia, and that actually caused a lot of issues. And to this day, I wear the feather um, in a locket on my necklace. Wow. And um, it's along with a motorcycle and a police badge, and it just says blessed. And this feather was actually in him, and um, you know, it doesn't represent. Um, for me it's not about the bird. It's about what it represents in terms of Pete's perseverance and determination and being able to overcome something that happened to us wow. in his life.
0: That's that's yeah. really beautiful. I mean the, the feather, not inhaling the feather, but right. um what you've done with it and how you took you took the meaning of it and, and, and made it positive afterwards. Again, you guys have an amazing story and well, not not
1: not being dramatic but I think I also almost died a number of times and I'm completely unaware of them. Michelle went through it. My kids went through it and obviously I'm alive and things are fine, but I think it was very stressful for them for a long period of time. And to this day I feel guilty about it, even though it's not my fault, but uh, she she had a lot to deal with. And, and this piece of jewelry uh, that was actually made by my friends on the team. They went to a jeweler and it's not very expensive. It's just a locket with a. But I tell her, uh, don't ever lose it because I'm not making another one. It's a one shot <laughs> deal. I see. And again, that, it's that attitude and humor about it
0: that, that keeps you going. So then let's explore you becoming the first cop on duty. Who's an above knee amputee. What was your recovery like and what
1: took you to get there, to get back into your job? Uh. W- What it took to get back into my job was sheer determination and stubbornness on my part, which makes me sound really good, but that's not what I mean. I was able to be determined and stubborn because my aunt, my family, and the OPP supported me to do it. I could not have done any of it if people didn't believe I could. Yes, I did a lot of hard work, a lot of heavy lifting, but the details of it were possible because my aunt and my wife, my kids and the OPP had faith in me that I could do it.
2: Well, and actually what was interesting is while Pete was in the hospital, I remember at one point speaking to, um, you know, human resources about the paperwork that had to be filled out Mm -hmm. with regards to short-term disability and long-term disability and all of that stuff. And I remember speaking to a woman on the phone and she said to me, okay, for now you're going to fill out this paperwork for short-term and then eventually you'll fill out for long-term. And obviously we were having a conversation in which she believed he would never be returning to work. And I remember saying to her on the phone, oh, well, no, no, he's going back to work. And meanwhile, keeping in mind at this point, he's still in the hospital and I'm telling this woman that, oh, no, he's going to be a police officer again. Now, I don't know if I was just in denial or I just really wanted him out of the house or I'm not really sure what the situation was, but I'm sure she hung up the phone and turned to her friend and said, that woman is a nutcase if she thinks her husband is going back to work. But I knew pete and he loves being a police officer and i knew that in some form he was going to go back to his job i didn't necessarily think it was going to be back on the road and i had my reservations about that later but i mean i knew he wanted to be a police officer
1: i always qualify this with i love my wife she's insane (laughs) i had no prosthetic i was still recovering and i admit i did want to go back to work but I had no prosthetic. I was still recovering. And she's telling the OPP, I'm coming back on the road. I'm going back to work. And she brought in five pound dumbbells for me to exercise in bed so that I could stay toned and work out. Well, I can't get out of bed to go to the washroom, but she'll bring me weight so I can sit there and work out. Well, she also wants to make sure that, you know, she's married to a buff man.
2: Exactly. (laughs) That's exactly right. No, I I do look back on that and think it was a little bit crazy when I think back to it, but I did. He had been lying in a bed, and of course, his muscles were atrophying, and I thought, no, you need to be doing something. So I brought in weights from home, and he was sitting in this hospital bed, and I was telling him, you know, do bicep curls. And I mean, I look back on that now and think, what was I thinking? But.
0: But I think you 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 were acting on our that robot in our minds that just says you need to get through this and yeah. this is the way to do it and let's get you strong because yeah. you want your husband back and you want him to be strong
2: Exactly. and
0: to get past the 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 vegetable state if you will air quotes of doing that so you know. Um, I think that's where you're reasoning behind that in, in hindsight now to, to be looking at it that way, right?
2: Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Um, another thing that happened that was quite interesting and uh, kind of along the same lines is that we, um, prior to Pete's accident, we had a trip that was planned um, to go to Mexico that Christmas. So the accident happened in June. Our family was going to Mexico in, at Christmas time and So there he is of course no leg in the hospital just out of a coma oh and on dialysis at this point because he had kidney failure so he ended up on dialysis for eight weeks and at some point the doctor said to us okay yeah you might as well cancel your trip to mexico it's not going to happen um but and i often joke that you know pete's a little bit cheap and um so we didn't have cancellation insurance so i didn't want to cancel right away
1: I'm taking them to Mexico, but I'm cheap.
2: Yeah, So I didn't want to cancel the trip right away. So I thought, we'll just hold off and see what happens. Well, sure enough, he gets out of the hospital at the end of October. And we ended up going to Mexico that December, December 20th, I think it was, for two weeks. And I mean, that trip was very different than we had originally planned. You know, he had to have a wheelchair there. And we ended up having um, some friends join us and we ended up getting married again, or renewing our vows while we were there, because he lived. Um, But, yeah, I mean, essentially, again, it was just a sign of the determination that we were going to try to continue living no matter what.
1: And it was a different trip. Uh, I was still getting used to my prosthetics, so it's kind of like riding a bike. You're not very good at first. And a lot of it was in wheelchairs. It was a different trip, Mm. but we decided we're going to live like We always lived and we had just as good a time. I'm not saying I didn't have my own issues dealing with it where I was a little sad, but the idea that we were still going on a trip was fantastic. And Michelle said to me in the hospital bed at one point, because the doctors told her to cancel the trip and she knows how much I love to travel with the family. She decided, no, we'll wait. And we ended up making it there. So while I'm in the hospital bed, she says to me, since we're going to Mexico, do you want to get married again? And I was on a lot of drugs, a lot of painkillers. And I thought, okay, to who? Like I didn't realize what kind of offer was out there. I didn't know what she meant. And she goes, me, you idiot. (laughs) So anyway, uh, we were going to uh, Mexico for Christmas anyway with another cop uh, and his family and this other cop friend of mine. We've been friends 26 years. And Scott took over my family, uh, taking over things when I was in the hospital. He was great. So once people heard we were getting married, other friends joined the tour. And there ended up being about 18 of us. Or 20 of us. 20 of us that went to Mexico and uh, had the wedding. It was good. I mean,
0: wow, that's, that's, again, what you guys do for each other. And I think Michelle is kind of right in that you want to mar- marry me again. it's really a second life for you. So she wants to marry this this man, right right? I don't know, I'm making that up, but I think it's <laughs> great in
1: my head so yes. but I think well, but also the, the awkward part is she tried to cash the life insurance out on the first guy and then marry me again. Yeah, like, <laughs> I think she had some <laughs> motives,
0: yeah <laughs> sure. that that. Hey, if it works, it works. <laughs> no, but I think um, I often say uh, when I meet with patients. Also, is it's those goals, right? So talking about going to Mexico, yes, you're going to be okay by the time we go to Mexico. It's all of those little things that play in your in your head, and you want to do everything, and you want to work on those things so that you have you can meet that goal and you achieve that goal. And a true celebration, really, of renewing your vows again. And your friends and family joining you that way, I think is a great way to celebrate your new life okay. as an amputee and, you know, oh, yeah. and moving forward. And I think from the time you told me your story that we started this, it's always been moving forward and being determined, right? So when you go back, so when you went back to work, you, so Michelle talked about you being back on the road and she wasn't expecting you to be back on the road. Were you back on the road right away?
1: Uh, No, I wasn't back on the road right away. Mm -hmm. Um, The OPP took great care of me. They gave me a great job at first to Mm -hmm. get me back into things. They put me into a crime unit. And I enjoyed it. I enjoyed the opportunity. And I knew they were looking out for me. And they had faith in me. But my desire was just to get back on the road. That's what I wanted to do. I wanted to be a traffic cop again. I've been doing this job 26 years now. At the time, 20 20 years. But I was comfortable with who I was and where I was working and what I wanted to do. A lot of guys, myself included, when we're young, for those who remember Miami Vice, we all want to be plainclothes cops driving white Ferraris and doing stuff. As you mature and you get older and you get comfortable with who you are and what you're doing, you realize, I realized, I want to be a traffic cop again. I'm good at it. I understand it. It makes me happy. I feel successful. I come home. I feel like I've done something. That's just my personality, where I wanted to go. The OPP thought they were giving me more. They were thought they were promoting me career-wise into bigger and better jobs. And I'm grateful they did that, but I knew where I wanted to be. And getting back to where I wanted to be was actually more difficult physically and mentally because I had to pass some psychological tests. I had to learn my firearm again. I had to learn street tactics again. And I had all these tests thrown at me. And in my opinion, I kept passing them, and I'm sure the OPP was going, "Huh, we want him to pass these things, but this is unbelievable. This guy with one leg wants to go back on the road, which is a job most guys don't like. He's not asking to be a sergeant. He's not asking for a special unit. He's passed all these tests, no matter how many times we give it to him. I think, and in my opinion, they actually got fed up with me and going okay we we can't stop this anymore let him go back on the road he wants the lowest rung on the ladder we can't bump him at, like let him do it
2: and i mean obviously it obviously i'm sure that the opp the higher ups had reservations about putting uh, you know an officer with one leg back on the road um, obviously you can understand that um, however i think because pete was very determined and he did continue to say give me the tests. I will pass the physicals. I will pass the, you know, m- mental tests. I'll do whatever needs to be done. And I mean, he passed them two and three times. So yes, it, it did get to the point where he had proven himself that he was capable. And at that point, they thankfully agreed that, okay, we're going to, um, you know, put you, allow you to do what you're asking for.
1: I think all I was asking for, nobody owed me. I wasn't deserving of anything because I got hurt and I lost my leg in the line of duty. I just wanted the opportunity to take any test they want to give me. And if I fail, it's on me. And that's okay. I can deal with it. However, what would cause me a lot of stress is if somebody said, oh, no, you're missing your leg. You can't do that. I might not be able to do it but let me try. And I never asked for any, uh, accommodating tests. I never asked for any of the tests to be any different than anybody else does. And I passed them all. And to be honest, I was, uh, 20 years when I had the accident, I did all those tests every year for 20 years. I knew what I was doing. I knew what was coming at me. I was quite confident I could pass them and I did. And that's, all I looked for from the OPP and they were great to me. And I think this is how other employers should treat people in our condition. Don't expect anything less from us. Give us the opportunity to do what you expect and most of the time we'll reach it. But if we're unable to, because we just can't anymore, then we can get into some accommodations and some concessions. But don't assume ahead of time you have to coddle me. Ask from me what you want, and let's see if I can do it.
0: Right. Oh, I I agree completely. I think, you know, guys like yourself is proving time and time again that we are absolutely capable of doing what we are meant to do. You know, Mm -hmm. para-athletes do that. Like again, like yourself, you know you've proven people over and over again and saying, "I am capable of doing these things. Don't label me or put me in a corner just because you feel that our culture believes that we should just be put in a corner this way so I think that's a that's a great message to to everybody and I, and I'm really glad that the o p p took your challenge to them and saying, "Put me back in line. do what you need to do to get me back in line if it's passing these tests then let me do them and prove to myself that actually i can and i think that's a self-boosting thing too oh right? it's huge because you're doing it for yourself you're not doing mm-hmm. it for anyone else you're not you know what i mean
2: well i really saw a change in pete um Prior to him going back on the road, I mean, he obviously was recovering and he it was a long recovery process. Like I will say the first two years following the accident were really rough. I mean, emotionally, um, you know, it was it was definitely a very, very tough time, um, both both physically and emotionally. I would say I think it took three years um, following the accident before he was allowed to actually be um you know, back on the road as a traffic officer. That's, Mm -hmm. I think, when it happened. And when that happened, there was a very clear shift in his confidence and in his personality. All of a sudden, the old Pete definitely was more evident because I I think just being able to do what he loved again and essentially prove to himself that he was able um, really was so important to him. And it really made a huge difference in our lives.
1: I think it's very important for your employer to support you. Now, my wife, my family, and my friends were fantastic. They got me through the hardest parts. But I'm very fortunate that I was employed by the OPP because they never caused me any stress. When I was hurt, I didn't worry about missing paychecks because my insurance kicked in. So I didn't have to worry about mortgages and bills and the kids and the house and whatever. But as far as being part of the OPP organization, I never felt on the outside. I had tons of OPP visitors all the time. I would have commissioned officers come see me, not because I'm anybody important. I'm just a spoke in a big wheel. But I was often just thrilled that commissioned officers, who had busy, busy schedules, would take their time out of their day to come check on me. Now, granted, constables were also fantastic, driving my wife around, taking care of my kids. The whole OPP organization was great, but I never felt isolated, I never felt alone, and I never felt anybody was trying to put me on a shelf. Uh, I had the opportunity, I came back, and as Michelle said, once I got back to where I wanted, I mentally excelled. I became better. So that was good.
2: And and I do believe, too, that a lot of the reason that Pete had so much support, um, and I mean, he had a lot of support in terms of just friends who, you know, really showed up after the fact. And I really think that says a lot about Pete and because he is a very, very social person. Um, he does have a lot of friends and he constantly reaches out to his friends, you know, on a regular basis. And he really keeps those contacts. And when he needed them, people were there. Like it was, it was really quite incredible, the support system that ended up showing up for him and for us.
0: Oh, wow, that's, that's really good to, to hear. I think that's really important too in your recovery. Now you're also, as I mentioned in the intro, one of the first, Osteo integration patient to have received the surgery here in Canada. So how did that come around? Two. Yeah. So how did that come about? How did you find out about the surgery? How
1: did you find out about the procedure? This is where I often tell people I'm lucky. Um, I understand people think I'm not lucky because of what happened to me. And I'm not saying I like it or enjoy it, but it's life. It happened. However, The things that happened after my accident helped convince me I'm one of the luckiest guys around because essentially what happened is uh, my uh, prosthetics people are down here in Niagara. And uh, uh, my, my friend Alan owns Niagara Prosthetics and Orthotics. Now, by total coincidence, his son took gymnastics from my wife Before the accident, we were not friends. We didn't know each other. I had the accident. He reached out to Michelle, wanted to come see me at the hospital, and he and his business partner, Bryn, got me set up with my first socket system. Then, and I'm kind of making up these dates a little bit, sometime in 2018, maybe it was April, they invited us to a meeting at uh, Niagara Prosthetics and Orthotics and they beamed in dr uh, uh, Al
2: Madiris.
1: Al Madiris from Australia, who pioneers this thing, and he just gave us a presentation on what it was: osseointegration. I was amazed by it, but to be honest, thought that's not going to happen. Like this is great technology, but he's in Australia. It costs this much money. Uh, how do you even get to see him? So I'm spoiled and I'm lucky because Alan and Bryn did all the work. All of a sudden, Dr. Turcott's office in Montreal was calling me to come in for my first physical appointment. So I went. And uh, in October 2018, I had the surgery. I would say from the time I heard about it and thought, well, this is a pipe dream. This is not going to happen. This is... Five months later, I had the surgery, and I was done. Uh, I did no work. I'm embarrassed to tell people I did no work. I did no research. There are many people out there that don't have the support and the insurance and the background help that I have. I have all that. I still did nothing. Other people did it for me, and it kind of embarrasses me that I didn't do more
2: Well, I think we were just very, very very fortunate and we were very fortunate that, you know, the clinic that he was involved in for his prosthesis ended up being the clinic that was really leading in the connections with the group in Montreal. So it was really, again, a little bit, uh, whatever you believe in faith, coincidence, you know, luck, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. I think we were just so fortunate to have that. Um, And yes, they basically set it up for us and, you know, Within a year, Pete had this surgery that has really, again, changed his life.
1: What I didn't realize at the time, and I found out after going to see Dr. Turcotte in Montreal, is it's a Quebec-based surgery that very few people in Quebec actually participate in. And most of the patients they do, a large percentage, are referred from Alan Rigby in uh, Niagara. So for some reason, Niagara has a connection to the ASO integration and produces most of the patients, which makes it more popular and more accessible to everybody. I had luck on my side; I had the company and the guy who were connected. I didn't know it. Right, and you were also the first that WSIB had paid into for you to have this procedure. Is that correct? Yes, WSIB covered the whole thing. I, I paid nothing.
2: And that was actually something WSIB. Was absolutely incredible. I know that um, you know sometimes sometimes people when they have injuries through work, you know, have a lot of difficulties. Um, But Pete was unbelievably fortunate with regards to WSIB. They were fantastic right from the very beginning um, in terms of again supporting us. And when Pete decided that you know he would like to look into the surgery, um, we of course got in touch with them to see if that would be something that they would um, assist with and thankfully, they eventually agreed. I mean, it was a little bit of a process, obviously, but um, they ended up agreeing that, yes, it would be something um, that would be beneficial to him. And I mean, at that point, he already was back to work. So I think they saw it as this is only going to make him even better in his um, at work. And so they were willing to um, support him in that. And so, yes, he ended up being the first person that WSIB um, covered for osteointegration surgery.
1: In fact, Once I had the osseointegration surgery, I was already a police officer on the road with a socket system. I did not have to do any retesting or reproving to the OPP that I was good because Dr. Turcotte said if he can do it in a socket, this osseointegration makes him even better. Like it was just an improvement. Everybody was happy. And again, I like to give kudos to people who deserve it. Some people have problems with WSIB. Some people have complaints. I have none. To this day, they take care of me still. Uh, They took great care of us when it happened, and we never had an issue with them. They were very helpful.
0: That's really good to hear. Dr. Turcotte is pioneering the surgery here in Canada. To my knowledge, he's the only doctor who does this in Canada. And actually, Montreal or Quebec is the first province in Canada that actually funds Aussie integration and for you in Ontario to be able to go across the provincial border, if you will, to to have that surgery and now have a better quality of life, I think it, it's more positive story than anything really and truly deserving of the RoboCop <laughs> name. So... And you, you guys have an amazing sense of humor. So how were you both through all of this, the the strength in the marriage? I know you just celebrated your your anniversary and always had this sense of humor about you two. It, there's got to be some challenges. So for a couple who's going through this, who may be listening to this, what are your tips and what, what were those challenges? Maybe we'll start with that. What were those challenges and how did you overcome them? If you could share that information. And then obviously, And still throughout all of this, what do you two kind of make this work and and sort of gel together still after all these years? Red
1: wine.
2: (laughs) I think, as I I did indicate earlier, um, you know, today we are able to joke and laugh together about this. And I mean, and we did try early on, but admittedly, I would say the first year for sure, and two years following the accident, it was a really tough time. Like it was not laughter, and, and in fact, that was probably one of the biggest difficulties for me is that Pete is a very fun guy. He does joke around a lot. Um, we have that in our marriage, but following the accident, he wasn't laughing. There was not a lot of fun in our house. Um, he was really, he really went into, I think, a state of depression for a while. And it was pretty miserable um, here. And so that was really, really tough on everybody. You know, it was it tough on Pete, tough on myself, tough on our kids. And I think in terms of how we got through that, we did, we had counseling. Um, Pete had counseling, I had counseling, and our family had counseling. So that was certainly helpful. Um, I think also, I just, thankfully believed in marriage and I knew that no matter what we were going to work to make it work and I think that's it like you have to have a ton of patience and you also have to have a ton of faith or belief that you're going to make it work and I think because I believed that um, and we believed that we were going to just keep working at it eventually very very small steps we got there Um, we just had to keep moving forward And eventually we were able to um, see some progress, thankfully.
1: I think we have a great marriage. I don't think we have a perfect marriage because sometimes, just like everybody else, we may have an argument, we may disagree, but we've come up with a system that once Michelle admits she's wrong, we move past it and we're okay. And that's kind of what works for us.
2: And as I said, a ton of patience. So you can deal with stuff like that. Because,
1: yeah, no. But if I could address the psychological help that Michelle brought up, before my accident, I had no use for it. We're all big people. We can all take care of our own problems. Before my accident, I thought a little bit of it was hocus pocus. I went to psychological counseling because the OPP wanted me to. That's how I had to get back on the road. So I played the game. I did everything Michelle wanted me to. I did everything the OPP wanted me to, but I went in with the belief it's not working. This is just putting in time. However, once I started going to see the psychologist, I actually liked her. I'd sit on the couch, I'd drink some coffee, we'd talk about my day. We talked less and less about my leg and more and more about my life. And one day when she said, Okay, I think we're done, half of me was thrilled. I don't have to see her anymore. And half of me was disappointed that I'm not getting coffee on the couch anymore. I actually grew to appreciate our time together. And I would tell anybody who's listening who shirks away from psychological help after an accident like this, from a guy who was wrong and didn't believe in it at first, I'd encourage you to take it. It's probably free. You're probably covered by something to take it. Just take it. And worst case scenario is it doesn't work. And if you had that attitude going in, you break even. But best case scenario, and the most likely scenario is, it'll help you. It'll help you get through things. Uh, that's, that's I think
0: that's really important to, to hear, because a lot of people go into isolation and saying, you know, I don't really, there's that denial, right, mm-hmm. that I don't really need that, or because of the stigma that's attached to, exactly. admitting that you have, that you'll need therapy or support in that, right. in that way. So, I think that's really important, and and you guys clearly have a great Relationship that people can hear over over the airwaves now, and you shared this story in the community, correct? You you guys do speaking engagements and talks, and and I was like, can you share a little bit about that?
2: Yes. So basically, what happened was, I guess Pete started speaking um, with the OPP or two OPP recruits. He was asked at some point um, by you know, his staff sergeant, um, to speak to OPP recruits. And so we started doing that. And actually, the way it happened is I remember one day I was watching one of his talks, and I was at the back of the room, and he was at the front speaking. And I must have had a look on my face and was shaking my head thinking, and probably indicating, no, it didn't happen like that. Because of course, he was in a coma, and he likes to make things up. So he was telling... (laughs) telling this story and it was completely wrong. And I guess he saw me shaking my head at the back of the room and he said, would you like to come up here and you know, tell your version? So I said, sure I will. So I walked up and started to speak as well and tell what actually happened. And then that sort of developed into us speaking together. And from there, I, it really has just um, evolved. So, in addition to speaking to different police groups—not just the OPP, but other groups around Ontario—we've um, also been, we've also spoken to businesses, we've spoken at churches, we've spoken to schools, and it really is just word of mouth. You know, somebody will hear us speak and say, um, "Oh, I believe that a friend of mine, you know, would love you to come and visit their group," and so we'd love to have you. And so we go and we do that, yeah. and.
1: It's funny because I speak freely. I have no skit. I just, you could ask me to stand up and talk to a room of 100 people for 20 minutes. I wouldn't prepare anything. I would just get up and talk. I can do it. Whereas Michelle, in our duo, she's the professionalism. She's the organization. She does the videos. She has her own skit she follows. And sometimes it just makes me feel like the arm candy. Like I'm just there to look good while she runs the show. It's
2: the story of our life.
1: <laughs> oh, I love that. I, I'm i trying to pull away not to
0: laugh as you were talking, but that's, again, the, the sense of humor, you guys. I think you as a duo, I mean, don't get me wrong, Pete, your, your story is inspiring, but you two together with this chemistry in the gel, I think sends a better, like a bigger message, if you will, not so much better, but yes, the cohesiveness of your story and the supportive with each other and the support want to support one another and the family support, I think really sends that message of working together and determination together and staying together through all of these challenges. And,
2: and I do think that that is something that is so important because the fact of the matter is when something like this accident um, or this tragedy, if you will, happens to a person in a marriage or in a family it doesn't just affect that person it affects the entire family like our lives changed the day of his accident and so i think that's really important to remember um for people is that you know there is a family that is also being affected by this and it's so i think you know we've been able to um I guess, develop as a couple and as a family and sort of move on from it. And thankfully, um, you know, I think have come out, I don't want to say better, but we've definitely grown from it.
1: Right. Aristotle, I'm glad you gave, you brought up the public speaking thing because, uh, and you having gone through it too, as our lives progress, we become more comfortable with who we are and we realize certain things. And I remember a particular moment that I think your listeners could get something out of a particular moment I had where I made a revelation that was to the benefit of my life was we were doing a public speaking engagement one time and we're talking about some of my medical conditions I suffered through. And one of the things I was on was a dialysis machine and I was on dialysis how many times a week?
2: At the beginning every day. And then every second day.
1: At the beginning every day. The point is, All of a sudden, I had this revelation during the middle of my speech where I accept missing my leg if I don't have to be on dialysis the rest of my life. Because if I'm on dialysis the rest of my life, which is like a prison sentence, I generally can't leave the country. I can't go to trips with my wife and my family. I can't have my freedom. I'm tied to a dialysis machine. And I actually had the revelation, yes, I would give up my leg now not to be on dialysis. And that's the first time I ever truly accepted things are the way they are. And even right now, I truly think if through some process I could get my leg back, but I had to go on a dialysis machine every other day for the rest of my life, and I'm only 48. I think, no, I'd say, no, I'll keep the prosthetic. And I'll enjoy life the way it is. Right. It's that quality of life, right? Quality of life. Yes, exactly.
0: Yeah. And again, with you two and the family together, I think from what you just shared, yes, you won't be able to go on trips anymore. So what's the point then of being on dialysis with a leg? Whereas if I don't have my leg, I get to enjoy my time with my with my wife, with my family, with my friends, who clearly are very supportive of you both. So,
2: no, I'm you know, sure that there are people who are on dialysis who still can have a very strong quality of life because of they make if they have a positive attitude and they make that. Of happen. course. But I think the point being is that at some point he realized because at at some point he realized that losing his leg was not the worst thing that could have happened, right? Like, Correct. And that he could still lead. Um, a full life, you know, even under the circumstances.
1: And that's another perspective I had that Ms. brought up there. I am aware that losing my leg is not the worst thing that could have happened. To me. Uh, five worst things that could happen to me off the top of my head is my wife or my four kids die. That's worse than my leg. And as far as I go, maybe I'm brain dead. Maybe I'm in a coma. Maybe I'm paralyzed. I think losing my leg, although tragic, might not even be in the top 10 of bad things that can happen to me. And that's the secret to keeping it in perspective. I'm not saying everything's rainbows and unicorn, but everything's not thunder clouds and lightning either. So, that,
0: I, I think that's very, that's deep, actually. As I always say, also, when I was going through my amputation my journey is perspective is everything. Huge. It really is. You guys, I wish we had more time. This is really good. You guys truly are a power couple. And it's an honor and a privilege to have interviewed here today. Any final thoughts for our listeners?
1: I think as far as our public speaking goes, the reason we do it is to give people a different perspective and a little hope. We don't do it for money. We don't do it for fame. We do it because we know how hard it is to get through it. We've made it through to the other side. And I've made it back to who I was almost completely as to before the accident. Physically, I'll never be there. But I think what people have to realize is bad things happen in life. You can't see them coming; they just happen, and it's how you deal with them. And if you deal with them with some hope and some positivity, you can return to who you were before whatever happened happened. And there, there's a re, and that there's a reason to keep going.
2: And I do think um, you know, as we said, we do do this public speaking. But I mean, if people even just wanted to speak to Pete or speak to myself, you know. We certainly would be willing to speak to people. I have um, said from the beginning that we had so much support at the time of Pete's accident, that this is our way of giving back. If people want to hear our story or they would like to speak to us about anything, you know, wanting to know our perspective and maybe it will help in their own lives, we're certainly willing to provide that. So if people wanted to reach out to us, they could certainly do that.
0: And where can they reach you?
2: So I would say probably through um, our Instagram, it would be pete Forward. if they wanted to reach out um, through there and then we would be able to get in contact with them from that.
0: Awesome. Well, I want to thank you both for chatting with me today and sharing your story. What an amazing story of resilience and courage and absolutely the the way you keep fighting for one another. I'm truly honored to have had this opportunity to Michelle and Constable Peter Tucker. Thank you. Thank you guys for tuning in. If you have any comments, questions, or show ideas, please connect with me on Facebook and Instagram, The Amputeo Show. I'll have Michelle and Pete's Instagram on my website as well, www.aristotledomingo.com. Until next time, I'm your host, Aristotle Domingo, and this has been The Amputeo Show Podcast.